What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast the podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm your host, Chris Stemp, and I'm excited for you to be here. We got a great one for you today. And actually, just as a note, this guest was recommended by one of our Patreon supporters. So if you want to recommend guests and also be able to submit questions, because I send out on Patreon who we're interviewing before we interview them. Head on over to patreon.com slash smart people podcast. And even for two bucks, I mean, two bucks a month is like nothing. So that being said, I want to make a few notes because I know sometimes people skip intros and it's important because one, there is some language in this episode. Don't say I didn't warn you. Okay. There is language. We're going to mark it as explicit Two, you'll notice in the first about 10 minutes of the interview, some audio issues. Look, I'm just going to give you some inside baseball. Oftentimes guests use like a standard phone headset and it rubs against clothing, but that picks up really crinkly and crisply. Um, so I heard that and as soon as I kind of got a chance and really knew what it was, I just kind of asked him, Hey, can you hold it? And he did for the rest of the interview. And it sounds great. So if you can just stick around through those first couple of minutes, you'll be good to go. All right, let's get into it. So we are interviewing Matt Stoller. And Matt wrote a new book just towards the end of October of last year, 2019, and it's called Goliath, the 100-Year War Between Monopoly, Power, and Democracy. First, a little bit about Matt. He is a fellow at the Open Markets Institute. He worked in the House of Representatives on financial services policy, including Dodd-Frank. He's written for the New York Times. He lives in D.C. He got his history degree from Harvard. Smart guy. And I'll tell you even more, he's a really good writer. Now, this book is a beast, Goliath, if you will, but even more so in this interview, you'll hear he just very casually throws out things like, oh, in the 1920s, this act, and in 1940, this happened. And that's a guy that knows his stuff. So in this episode, what I kind of focused on was modern day monopolies. How are they impacting us? What are they? What's the problem with them, et cetera? Even though his book is a little bit more focused on the history of how we got to where we are. And that was because I just 
wanted to focus a little bit more on the current situation, but Matt did an awesome job of highlighting in this episode the bits of history that we do need. So I'm going to bring in Matt here. Remember, we are at smartpeoplepodcast.com, and you can email us, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you, and I love getting your thoughts, whatever way they might be about anything, um, as they help us get better. You can support us, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. Here is Matt Stoller as we talk about Goliath, the 100-year war between monopoly, power, and democracy. Enjoy. I mean, a lot of what a lot of what I try to do actually with Goliath and then my work is I try to demystify a lot of the jargon, which is like the, a lot of the jargon that people use to talk about power is just kind of like bullshit designed to con- confuse people and intimidate them. And one of the really important parts of the book or themes of the book is that people who try to concentrate power in dangerous ways, one of their main tactics is to use complicated words and to corrupt language itself so that we can't understand what they're doing. And it's kind of like a bullying thing where they're like, oh, you're too, you're too dumb to understand. Uh, we're sorcerers. We're, we're mystics. And like right. they do that in every, like in every era. They use different language and terminology. They use different sort of quasi-religious iconography. But like that's what the game is always about. And then you have mm. people like me who are coming back and being like, no, this is simple. This is always about power. What that reminds me of is when I first started my career, it was 2005. And I worked right just outside of D.C. in Tyson's. And I did commercial real estate lending. And it's a funny time to do commercial real estate lending yeah, because of course, <laughs> yeah, right. Because of course you're aware of what happened. And what's funny is I, Spoiler. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I genuinely had an inside view. Like I will never forget when I started, we had these certain criteria of how much money a property had to be able to basically make, they call it a debt service coverage ratio, you know, to service the debt. And very quickly, that number just kept going down and down and down until a lot of lending was being done where a property only needed to estimate it's going to make exactly the amount of money needed to pay a no interest loan. And we would lend on it. Not only did they not need to cover any interest, they did not have to have anything above that, essentially. Right. Like no, no margin of safety at all. Like no margin of safety, right? And, and it was driven by the banks and we saw our numbers go down as a life insurance company. The reason I bring this up is because as you were talking about they make it all magical and mystical, I mean, we're just selling these things on the market. The banks are buying it up. Nobody knew what was going on, even the people doing it. And that's what caused the crash. And that is essentially what you're talking about, where when you outsource your knowledge to people in power, rarely do they actually know what's going on. Yeah, that's 100% right. And actually, that's why I wrote the book. So my introduction to this is a little more complicated, but I got started. I was started working in Congress in 2009 for a member of the banking committee, you know, and that was a good time to go in there to learn. But like my orientation was, you know, here's a desk. Good luck with the financial crisis. Right. That's what it was. And, And it was so funny because you would just there was all this like jargon and bullshit that they would try to be like, oh, we have to deal with this, you know, this super complicated, weird derivatives thing or this, you know, whatever it was, they would bring credit instruments. It was all this jargon. And actually the American Bankers Association, they, when you, when you started working in Congress as a staffer, they would actually give you like a three-day uh, boot, banking boot camp where they would just teach you all about banking. And this was the main like lobbying association for the big banks. Like they were wow. the ones teaching bankers, like, teaching staffers about banking, which was sort of hilarious. But, you know, I would learn things and like the industry nicknames were so much more um, uh, real than the, the jargon. So they would say, oh, wow, we're showing really bad loan rates or de- default rates in the liar loan segment. And I would be like, wait, there's a segment of loans called liar loans. <laughs> right? Like that's super fucked up. Right. But like, yeah. in the industry, we're like, oh, yeah, they're called liar loans. And then the other, you know, the actual jargon would be like no documentation, you know, no like loan verification, blah, blah, blah. But it was like everybody knew it was just people that were lying about their income. Actually, they weren't lying about their income. The, the bankers who were allowing money were, no, they were actually saying they, they weren't just allowing it. They were filling in the forms for them. So someone would come in and be like, I don't have a job. And they'd be like, Let, I, you know what? Don't worry. We're going to put down that you have $8,000 of income a month. You know, and so like when I saw what we were doing and it was, I'm a Democrat, but we just fucked it all up. It was horrible. And you know, I get these calls from people who are in foreclosure and it was just, they were, they were like, oh, you know, I'm paying my 
my mortgage, but the bank is foreclosing anyway, and all of this nightmare stuff. And I would go talk to people in the White House or HUD or various other places and be like, this is really messed up. And they were all caught in all of this jargon. And kind of like I was trying to figure out, you know, I'm a Democrat. We're supposed to represent, we're supposed to be the party of the people. And yet mm-hmm. we can't, not only do we, are we actually not helping people in the midst of this horrible crisis, and we're, we're actually doing worse than that. We're concentrating wealth and power. But like, even worse than that, we don't even know we're doing it. Our language, the language that we talk about this stuff in, um, is so corrupted and flabby and weird that we don't even notice what we're doing as we're doing it. And so that sort of got me to try to understand, like, what the fuck happened to the Democrats? What happened to our politics? And the one person who ended up, like, no understanding what was going on during the crisis was this economist named Jane Darista, who is this old economist who, and, I, and she kept being like, hey, that market's going to blow up. That market's going to blow up. And like, she was always right. And no one else knew what was going on, as you noted, right? Like Mm -hmm. everyone else was the bankers, the treasury people, fed people, like lobbyists. Nobody knew what was going on, but Jane DeResta did. And I was like, how do you know all this? And she said, well, I worked on the banking committee in the 1960s and 70s when they were taking down all of these, these safeguards. And I learned why the safeguards were there. And so now I know as the safeguards are gone, what's going to blow up because they're not there. Wow. And, and so she taught me, she's like, oh, I work for this. I was like, you know, who did you work for on the banking committee? And she's like, oh, I work for this congressman named Wright Patman. And Wright Patman is this old congressman that nobody had really heard of um, until like I, I kind of helped bring it back, his reputation in 2016. But he was this congressman who was in Congress from 1929 to 1976. And he had, he has this amazing career of fighting banks and monopolies, right? And that's what he did from 1929 all the way up into the mid 70s when he was overthrown by the Bill Clinton generation. And a couple of years later, I was reading this book on monopolies and they mentioned Walmart and we're like, oh, Walmart really exploded when this law that had uh, constraints on like how big businesses could price and bargain, like this law was eliminated and this law was called the Robinson Patman Act. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's like Robinson Patman. That's right. Patman. That's that same guy. And so mm-hmm. that like opened up this whole window into how mid-century America operated. And there were all of these fights that had gone on over the nature of commerce that I had never knew existed. And I got a history degree from Harvard and I studied the political economy in the 1920s and 30s. And I had no idea that these things happened. So I was like, wow, how was our, not to say that, I mean, that that's actually like, I say that in, in embarrassment that I got a degree from history degree from Harvard. <laughs> it's like, it was a bad education, right? I mean, and like, but I was just trying to figure out why, uh, why we didn't know any of this stuff, right? And so the, the book is a story of those fights, like kind of what happened. Um, we're, we're right now, like we're in this weird position when you talk about those companies that have breathtaking power, probably companies like Amazon or Facebook or Google, but there is actually monopoly is systemic in every part of the American economy now. It's like, it's everything from syringes to like, you know, peanut butter to cheerleading. Like it's crazy the amount of, of concentrated power everywhere. And it's controlling and manipulating us and causing us to be creeped out and frustrated and all these invisible kind of bars. And you hear people talking about like, oh, we want socialism or we don't like capitalism or whatever it is, or we like capitalism. But it's like, what's really happening is that our markets are extraordinarily concentrated and controlled by a small group of people. And nobody likes this, not on the right or the left. So it's a crisis of monopoly. I want to learn about the history, but I think where I would rather dive in at the moment is just to talk about the current state for those that don't know and like really define the problem and even what we are talking about when we're talking about a monopoly, like maybe your definition of it, because I think it's really easy for us to say, okay, Amazon runs retail, Apple runs electronics and, and it kind of say it in passing. We know it, but we also love or use a lot of those products and really not understand the impact it has. So how do you define monopoly and what is the current problem today? So I'll use the definition that Brand, Louis Brandeis, who's a Supreme Court justice, and actually Milton Friedman, who's an economist, both of them had the same, essentially the same definition, which is a monopoly is control, unified control of a, of a branch of trade or a service, right? And it's, so it's not like, you know, a lot of people get confused because monopoly is just, they think, oh, well, that, that means one company that has, uh, that sells all of one product or that buys all of one product. It's actually about control and it doesn't have to be just one company. That's basically like power. And there are many different ways that you can exercise power. There are many different contractual arrangements or non-contractual arrangements 
There are many different ways within markets that you can organize power because markets are all uh, very different. But, um, you know, and, and monopolies, you know, a company can be a monopoly to you and not a monopoly to somebody else. So, for example, take Amazon, right? Like Amazon sells about 50% of online retail, right, which is a large share. So, you know, but you can, if you're a consumer in a city, um, you could probably go and, and find other places to buy a lot of the things that you would be buying on Amazon. Like not everything, but, but a lot of things that you would need. If you're a company that sells products, if you need access to online customers or to the retail channel online, you actually have to go through Amazon, right? Like Amazon is a non, right. it, is a, it is a monopoly for you. It is not necessarily a monopoly for the person who is buying from you. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so monopolies can exist in many, and a monopoly can even change for the, for the, for the business or person who's buying the product. So for example, if you buy a software package, right, to run your business, you might have a number of different choices, right? And so there's no, not necessarily a monopoly there, but once you buy a software package and you start running your business on top of it, you invest kind of a lot of time training your employees and putting your information in it. And now it's more, it, there's still alternative software packages you can go to, but maybe it'll take a couple hundred hours of time to move over to one of those. So now you're like, there's more of a monopoly. That, that, that company, that software company has more control over you, even though there might be alternatives in the market. So it's really a question of control. And I'm just going to read you a quote. This is my, one of my favorite quotes of the day uh, or of the week. It's a private equity guy named Robert Smith who owns a bunch of these midsize uh, software companies. And he says... And this is one of the reasons he's doing really well when he buys them up and raises prices. He says, software contracts are better than first lien debt. You realize a company will not pay the interest payment on their first lien debt until after they pay their software maintenance or subscription fee. We get paid our money first. Who has the better credit? He can't run his business without our software. Wow. That is power. That is control, right? And that is the essence of the concentration problem in America today. This week's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. There's a sense of pride that comes with being able to talk confidently, intelligently about a subject, or to be the only one at trivia with the answer. And that's why we love The Great Courses Plus. With this streaming service, we have the freedom to learn more about virtually any topic and not just get the basics, but truly master it. Learning unique perspectives from top engaging experts in their fields. There's unlimited access to thousands of lectures on topics like biological anthropology, great music of the 20th century, and even travel photography or Mediterranean cooking. And with the Great Courses Plus app, we have the flexibility to watch or listen just about anywhere. If you've been listening to Smart People Podcast for a while, you know that we love the brain. So we recommend that you check out the course Outsmart Yourself Brain-Based Strategies for a Better You. This course explores how our brains work and scientifically proven brain hacks we can use to make lasting changes in our behaviors like how to help beat procrastination by doing nothing at all for 20 minutes. Get that awesome feeling of pride that comes with knowledge. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus. For a limited time only, they're offering Smart People podcast listeners an entire month for free. But to start your free month trial, you must sign up today using our special URL. Go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart people. Start your free month trial today. And now back to the episode. Now, the comeback there would be, well, there's multiple software programs they could use though, right? So we can't solve the problem of if I choose a software system as a owner, then I'm invested in it. That's just a standard decision, I would imagine, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm just trying to give you a definition, but like one thing, for example, that we don't allow is we don't allow a, um, when you have that amount of control, like for example, an electric utility they could just turn off your electricity, right? If they wanted to, right? right? We don't allow them to. And we also don't allow them to engage in just aggressive like rate hikes, even though they could, right? Because what are you going to do? You need the electricity. That's a good point, right? yes. So there, there, it's not that you necessarily always have to like have alternative options 
It's just that's like a really good way of addressing sort of this concentration of power. But it's not the only way. And um, it's just that kind of these, the software essentially grew up in the 1980s and 90s as a, as a business model. And so mm-hmm. we never kind of put any of the traditional American public utility controls or, or rate regulation or, or kind of ways of like making sure there was competition or, or um, price caps or whatever. We never put anything on there. And so there's like right. this totally unregulated area. Now, you mentioned something really interesting when you said there's monopolies in almost every aspect of life, especially in America. And you said something about syringes. Because we tend to think of the obvious ones, what are some of the less obvious that are having a really negative impact on just our life? Well, um, I mean, there's so there's so many. I So this isn't really a monopoly, but it's still part of the, the concentration problem. So I, I wrote a piece about... Um, uh, about this this kind of contract, which is called a non-compete contract, right? And that's a contract which says, if you work for uh, a company, the company has you sign it, and it says you're not allowed to work for any of their competitors for a year or two or three. Now about 20% of Americans have signed these, often because they don't have a choice. Uh, the company that they work for is really big, uh, and they, they basically put it down and say, sign it, or you know, you can't join or you're fired or they don't even know, right? It's one of those click wrap things where you just, they're just like, sign. this is your employment agreement. Sure. And it's things like, you know, it's not just like high tech engineers who probably shouldn't have to sign these anyway, but it's also, it's people like groundskeepers or, um, you know, or camp counselors or cheer coaches or whatever. And it's like, what this is doing is it's holding down wages everywhere because one of the things that you can do to raise your wages is you can get a better job somewhere else. And with these what these non-competes are doing is they're preventing that. It also forces people to stay in often abusive or discriminatory environments. And it hurts you if you want to start a business or if you are a business, you run a business and you want to hire somebody who's very good. Um, Even if they're not necessarily in a competitor, if they're in a sort of, if you're just afraid that their business that they work for is really litigious, um, then you may not want to hire them. So I've heard of instances of that. And so this has a really big impact on kind of like our working, uh, our working lives. It has a big impact on, uh, on business formation and basically on our, uh, on our liberty. I mean, then you also have like all the big ones, right? Like you have, you know, your cable prices are higher than they should be, like much higher. You know, our, uh, our phone prices are much, much higher than they should be. And just to give you an example, like Israel had roughly comparable cell phone prices that we did in um, uh, like 2009 or 10. And then they had a, um, a big anti-monopoly movement and they introduced a, some, a few new competitors into the cell phone market and prices dropped by 90%, like nine Whoa. zero, which is crazy, right? So like, that's crazy. That's crazy. And so, so you have like a lot of, a lot of just kind of like price hikes. Um, wages are, you know, substantially lower than they should be. And then healthcare prices, like healthcare is this place, which is just like, you know, insanely expensive purely because of um, hospital consolidation where they can just like kind of gouge you um, or, or health insurance consolidation or, or um, uh, consolidation in places like ambulances or um, pharmaceuticals. And that's just like, they just raise prices, right? And, and um, so it's crazy and it, it affects everybody, right? It, it's not just the costs, but it affects like the nurses and the doctors and the affects patient care. It's, I mean, I just, and I'll just tell you, like, this is the craziest, it's like, I could go on like endlessly, but like one of the things I saw was that there was this software provider that just got in trouble because they had cut a deal with a pharmaceutical company. They got kickbacks to have, and they programmed their software for doctors to over-recommend opioids. So to give like doctors alerts to prescribe more opioids. Wow. And it's like, like, (laughs) I mean, and, and so how does that directly link to this idea of a monopoly? So even take that example. Hey, I need you to prescribe more opioids. What's the tie in there? Because to me, that just seems like a, a, a bad company. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's sort of fair. I, I think that like one of the ways that, um, so one of the way, w- there's like a lot of market power in how drugs are distributed. So we have these, you effectively have a, a, bu- a few small, a few extremely large companies called pharmacy benefits managers that uh, basically keep lists of drugs and your insurance company says to them, um, you know, hey, we need a list of drugs that we can offer our customers and prices and you guys maintain it. You guys go and bargain with drug companies for better prices. And so the PBMs do that and there are only two or three of them now. Um, And what what they do is they get kickbacks from the uh, drug companies 
uh, secret kickbacks to, and so they 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 over prescribe certain medications based on what they're getting paid secretly under the uh, table, and the yeah. market power is insane. So you don't like you can't go to a PBM and say, hey, I want a list of all your kickbacks, and I don't want you to take those anymore because they can say, well, fuck you, you know, we are. Um, our, our two competitors do it too. And I don't care what you want. Um, and right. there's no alternative, right? So right. That, that's like an example of, of market power. I haven't looked in the particular software one, but like I imagine mm-hmm. it's somewhat similar. Right. And and you mentioned this earlier, this idea of consolidation, which I'm assuming you're referring to kind of just these large companies buying up smaller companies and therefore creating a monopoly. Is that the most common way that for, or a company with a good idea or good IP or good patents just continues to grow until they own everything? Is this ability to acquire anything at will, essentially? So there's a number of ways that monopolists um, or that that very powerful corporations grow. um, And mergers are an important aspect of that because one of the simplest ways of getting rid of your competition is just to buy them. So like, for example, you know, you take the big, you know, Google, Facebook, um, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, they bought um, from 2004 when the internet was relatively open until 2014, they brought hundreds of companies worth uh, tens of billions of dollars, which was effectively like a roll up of um, a series of industries like the ad, ad tech industry. And we have laws on the books that say you're not allowed to buy companies that get in, in, a, in, in order to um, concentrate power in markets in order to reduce competition, uh, but we just didn't enforce them. In Goliath, what I note is that this is actually quite similar to what happened in the 1890s when you saw um, you had all these iron and steel companies that were doing all really interesting things and innovating. And then J.P. Morgan, who was kind of like the main banker, uh, kind of financier of the time, kind of known as the boss of America, he came in and he effectively engineered a roll-up similar to Google and Facebook rolling up ad tech. And uh, of all of these iron and steel companies and put them together into something called U.S. Steel in 1901, which was actually the first billion dollar American company. U.S. Steel still exists today, but that was part of the role. And most of our big companies that um, we know of as kind of founding of corporate America, like General Electric or Westinghouse or International Harvester, um, they were created at that time, the turn of the century, in the same way um, with just the, a roll up in whatever area of the economy that they were involved in. So we've been here before. We've we've had this problem before, and we did actually address it. And one of the ways that we did it was we we implemented these anti-merger laws um, and stopped these companies from buying up their competitors. And then there was a lot more of, of a competitive economy when these laws were enforced. Well, yeah, and take Facebook for example. They own, I mean, they own a ton of things, but they own Instagram, right? So how does that not meet the definition of essentially rolling up into a monopoly? I mean, you took these two enormous social media sites. I don't even know the usage, but definitely the two biggest in the world um, at the time. And they just bought them. And so people would use Instagram for a while, I think many, thinking Maybe it's a separate thing. I remember there was a big thing, quit Facebook, but all people did was quit Facebook and go to Instagram or go back. So how do we not enforce that? Or is that not an example of what the laws should be able to enforce? Yeah. I mean, the other one is WhatsApp, right? So they bought, yeah. uh, they bought Instagram, uh, I guess in 2012 and they bought WhatsApp in 2014. I think that, so what happened, I mean, I can go into the details of, and it's actually kind of interesting because it shows how the jargon like defanged our laws. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. At Smart People Podcast, we absolutely love Audible. We know everybody doesn't have the free time to sit down and just read all day, but we do know that you have the ability to listen to things throughout your day because, hey, you're listening to this podcast you could be listening to audiobooks as well. And I know plenty of you are still going strong with your New Year's resolutions, whether it's getting fit, reading more, or becoming a better parent, leader, person, whatever it may be. And Audible can absolutely help you with that. With Audible, each month, members get one credit to pick any title plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. And the app is free, and it can be installed on all your smartphones and tablets. One of the coolest features of Audible, you can listen across devices without losing your spot. And if you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year, 
and then use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. And obviously, this episode, we're recommending Matt Stoller's Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. Head over to Audible and check it out. So listen up. Visit audible.com smart or text smart to 500-500. Yep, it's that easy. Head over to audible.com smart or text smart to 500-500. And now back to the episode. Yeah, let's hear it. I mean, I, I'm curious I could, because the, the thing is that to me is an obvious one that everyone is impacted by because essentially those are the two social platforms, maybe three WhatsApp, right? And and when it's owned by one company, they essentially own social, which is the, which is billions of people. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, from, from the, the people that are really the institutions that are real, that are being harmed by that, not just the users are, are actually media companies. So who, mm. who are, uh, have to get access to, uh, their customers through these social networks and in which, and so, so Facebook has really powerful bargaining leverage against them and can f- basically force them to hand over data and then can use that, uh, data to actually um, target the the audience of those publishers with ads, and so it's right. like now you don't you know you don't have to go to any publisher and to reach their audience. You just go to Facebook, and Facebook will say, "Yeah, sure, we can we can reach all the people that that publisher wants to reach, and more, and we know more about them." And that's uh-huh. that's like that's pretty anti-competitive, uh, and it's also dangerous because you know the whole free press is dying. That's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so what happened is uh, that the laws were um, so in the in the kind of I, I showed this there were a whole series of battles over um, over how to enforce these laws and what these laws meant. Uh, but we passed major antitrust laws four times in the nineteenth uh, and twentieth century, and every single time it was Congress saying, "No, no, we really mean it." Right. We want you to protect. We want the government to protect small businesses, and we want them to stop. The concentration of capital, right? And then the courts would get would like weaken it, or enforcers would weaken it, and then Congress would like pass another law and be like, no, no, we really mean it, right? And they would they just keep doing this, right? It was sort of this battle between Congress and the courts. Um, so what happened in the 1970s, right, when we had a pretty decentralized economy, uh, is that there was this school of thinking on the right, right? It was more of a conservative movement. It was centered at the University of Chicago. But there were there was a really important left-wing allies, right? Um, which I'll get into in a second. But on the right, they said, look, you know, these laws that are designed to sort of protect competition, um, that, you know, you think that what that means, you think that what competition means is, you know, to have multiple rivals in a market. Like you and I would say, oh, is there competition? Oh, does that mean there are a bunch of different options to buy from sure. who are independent or a bunch of different options to sell to who are independent. But like this guy who like transformed our thinking, understanding of laws was like, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Actually what competition means is, is this an efficient marketplace, right? And the way we'll measure that is just, it, are the prices in that marketplace low for consumers? Because if they're low for consumers, then that means it is as efficient as it could possibly be. And having more competitors in there doesn't matter one way or the other. Uh-huh. So they got, they got rid of the idea that competition means having rivalry in a market and said competition actually just means low consumer prices. So what you saw um, in the 1970s and 80s was the explosion of a company called Walmart, which had as its slogan, everyday low prices, right? Mm. Which is the, the, the manifestation, the marketing manifestation of what Robert Bork thought. Um, now, when you had this roll-up of power into the hands of Walmart and a, a series of other uh, corporations, um, you know, a bunch of small stores died, right? A lot million or something like that, uh, independent stores died. And that had a lot of impact, uh, important impacts on communities and on, on supply chains. But, you know, at, in the, the 1980s, because, you know, basically Bork on the, on the Republican side and then the consumer rights movement on the Democratic side said... No, 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 this is fine. We don't care about those stores. We don't care about independent business. All we care about are low prices to consumers and Walmart is delivering them. And so both parties were like, oh yeah, okay, that's, that's fine. This is just kind of natural and what happens when you have a capitalist world. In fact, prior to the 1970s, the Democratic Party, more than the Republicans, although both parties kind of believe this, said, no, 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 What's, what competition means, what America means, what liberty means is to have, you know, a... Uh, uh, a person be able to start their own business if they want to, and we are going to protect that with 
our, our laws and regulations, and a very important one, not the only one, is, is antitrust. And that, that definition got subverted. And now you roll that forward 40 years, and what you have are companies like Facebook and Google who have products that don't cost any money at all to consumers, right? Uh, and so the laws can't see them, right? Because low consumer prices. Or you have a company like Amazon, which is entirely dedicated to, um, or at least was, you know, they didn't even have to make money for the first 20 years. They were <laughs> dedicated to like low prices for consumers in ways that were really anti-competitive. But the people who were, who were being extracted from by Amazon were, uh, were actually small businesses and suppliers. And the law, the enforcers, couldn't see, couldn't see that anymore. And so that's why, you know, when Facebook goes and buys um, Instagram or they go buy WhatsApp, you have these enforcers who are like, I don't see the problem here. This isn't going to change consumer prices. And it's ridiculous. Like they totally got it wrong and they should, right. they should, and they could go back and they could be like, you know, cause you can reverse mergers, right? That's like the Clayton Act, which is a law against mergers. You can go back and do a reverse a wow. reverse merger. We did Wait, that so in the they could, they could go back and just basically say, you know what, Instagram, you're your own company, and Facebook, you're your own company now. Totally, they did it in the seventies. Like wow. uh, Procter and Gamble brought, bought Clorox, and the FTC said, oh, we got that wrong. Um, you know, I know it's been ten years, but but go split it up, and they did. That's crazy. I just can't yeah, even lost. imagine the. I can't, I just can't imagine the 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 structure of that. Yeah, no, that's the thing. Is like like. People think, and like this is part of the idiot. Like this is like how they 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 like got us to tolerate this crap. It's like mm -hmm. they think, oh my god, like this is natural. Like if you split up Facebook and Instagram, it would be the most titanic damage ever, or whatever. Or they were right. like, oh my god, you can't break up companies. That would be horrible. But it's like Wall Street all the time splits up companies. They do spinoffs. They do mergers. Like all the time, right? Yeah. It's it's just like. We've all been through mergers or we've all been through like spinoffs. It's not that hard. It's not like, and you know what? If you screw it up, it's not that big a deal. Like you right. fix it, right? So like they've convinced us not that spinoffs and mergers are, are good or bad, but they've convinced us that they should be handled on Wall Street and in that network of banks and law firms, not by, you know, we the people through our public institutions like the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, su such that it's, it's unimaginable to us, even though it really shouldn't be. Right. Well, and I know that we've done that in the past. Now, I, I didn't know about doing it in arrears, but I do know that we've blocked it. So, for example, I think like AT&T, that's happened to a bunch in some capacity, right? Yeah. I mean, we've broken up AT&T three times in the 20th century. There you go. Right. So... Let me ask you this. You mentioned something about we think it's natural. And one of the rebuttals I would imagine you get is, well, look, if we are going in and messing with companies, we are essentially messing with capitalism, right? It's that belief that markets rule and it'll sort itself out, which personally I don't agree with, but I, I know that that is a common refrain. What is the answer to that. When people say this is just capitalism, you have companies that get big because they're great and they buy up other companies. Eventually someone will come along, they'll create the next Facebook and they'll decide to do it on their own. Well, there's no such, there's no one way to do capitalism, right? There's no such mm -hmm. thing as, as I don't really, I don't think there's a, such a thing as capitalism or socialism right now. I think that's all just branding, right? Like markets are, are just always politically contingent um, on what the rules we choose to set, right? Like this is very simple. Yeah. So like, you know, but if you want a world where there is no, um, there are no protections against mergers, repeal the antitrust laws. Go ahead and do it. We, but we have them on the books. We should enforce them if they're on the books. We just don't. Um, so, like, there are a lot of uh, every contract, right, that we have, right, and our our legal system and our our market based system is based on contract. Every contract, every corporate charter comes from or is enforced by the state. So all of these things are just political rules that we set up. And we change them all the time. So anyone who says, oh, that's just disrupting, you know, that's disruptive to capitalism, like actually just that's not coherent, right? They're, they're like spreading religious orthodoxy. They're not actually thinking about um, the, the institutional realities of how uh, the world works. And there are, that's like kind of the neoclass, like, so there's this um, way that to think about the world called neoclassical economics, um, which is a lot of like the Chicago school people thought or libertarians think about it a lot. And this is sort of a, a, a kind of actually lefties like John Kenneth Galbraith thought about it too. This is sort of part of the book. 
But this basically idea is that, oh, there are these natural systems. We live in these kind of like evolutionary models and technology just happens. They're globalization. They're these, just these giant forces. And then there's like the school of, of thinking that I guess I kind of more come from, which is the institutionalist school, which says, actually, you have to look at how the law is set up and what the, the actual uh, contracts and, and types of transactions that we do are to understand our world and our system. And whenever I look at a, a monopoly, I almost always trace it back to some change in law or policy that enabled that monopoly to actually exist. Right. Well, one of the things I'm assuming you would advocate for would be more regulation. And what I want to ask, especially given your position right after the recession, how much of that financial crisis was caused by deregulation that happened maybe with 10 to 20 years prior? And then how how directly can we draw like a correlation between this is what happens when you deregulate and this is the case for more government intervention or regulation along the lines of splitting up power. Basically, what has caused a crisis is what causes every crisis in financial uh, in history, which is which is gambling with other people's money. Right. That's all it is. And mm -hmm. actually, the weird thing is kind of one of the things I learned when I was researching my book is that every uh, financial crisis in America always seems to involve Citibank and Florida real estate. So it's like, it's actually um, kind of hilarious. But um, the way that I think about deregulation or, or regulation uh, is deregulation is kind of a word that was created in the 1960s slash 70s. But it's kind of like a, it's not a word I love because when you take away public rules over industries, you're not actually kind of getting rid of rules. You're not deregulating. What you're doing is you're moving regulation to private institutions. So if you think about what like Mark Zuckerberg does as the head of Facebook, he's not overseeing an unregulated social media space. Right. He's actually just a private regulator, right? So he's setting up a Supreme Court. If you go to like Amazon or you go to these, a bunch of these corporations, you know, and you, you start to look at how they operate, they start to look a lot like governments. They have notice and comment periods for new rules. They can issue fines. They do all of these things. Like I noticed this with Visa or MasterCard, like they have very elaborate um, control systems over their whole network that look a lot, they basically are governing systems. And so when we talk about what happens when you change rules, like when you pull public rules out of markets, you're actually just moving power from a, pro a public government, government, which is we the people, what we elect in our states and cities at our federal level, and you're moving it over to these private regulators on either Wall Street or in Silicon Valley or in kind of like various private equity groups, and they're making decisions over terms and services, right? So for wow. you, for example, you were like saying, oh man, Comcast is really annoying or whatever. Yeah, people yeah. Is. You know, that's who is governing your access to the internet, right? They were right. choosing the terms and service and you didn't really have any power um, against them. And so that's like, that's actually the government, the government that you're facing. And that's kind of like the point of Goliath when I wrote A Hundred Year War to Monopoly Power and Democracy. People think of monopolies as a, as a business structure and it's kind of, that's not wrong, but actually when you have a monopoly is a, is a uh, political system, right? It's a type of politics and it is inconsistent with, um, with democracy, right? And because it's, it's a democracy only um, wields power if it, uh, is it, if, if it can, uh, if we can organize the marketplace for our own liberty. And if someone else is organizing the marketplace, for you know their own purposes and they have concentrated control aka they're a monopoly then we don't live in a free society and ultimately what tends to happen is they tend to take over the ballot box as well you know i'm so glad you said that it's like you read my mind because what i want to do with the last you know five or ten minutes or so is is kind of say how does this tie into politics because although i'm sure it's there somewhere i mean i get it but when I think of monopoly, I tend to just think of it's huge companies who are controlling a lot of things, whether it be wages or prices or access or whatever it is. It's because the company yields the power because they're the only game in town, basically. But what you're saying, it really, it's that it's taking power away from the individual, which is the that is democracy. So you're kind of saying that monopoly is in part a government system. Yeah, that's right. And I think like so wow. when you. When you 
Um, I know it's really, it's amazing. I was like one day as I was studying this, I was like, oh my God, it's actually yeah. a totally different political system. And that was, um, I, 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 I want to say that that was my insight, but you know, people have actually known that for hundreds of years. We just, well, that. I haven't. <laughs> no, I mean, I, but, but let me, I'll just say like, one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, and I have a chapter in my book called Trust Busters Against Hitler, which was about how we fought World War II. And one of the things that uh, was going on when the New Dealers in the 30s and 40s and 50s were kind of advocating for what they were advocating is they saw that industrial power could be uh, used either by the state in these very dangerous ways, which was the Soviet Union, so communism, but they also saw that it could be the that private monopolies could take over the state. And that was fascism in either Italy or Germany. And they thought, you know, decentralizing this power uh, through through democratic means, which involves both elections, but also uh, anti-monopoly rules um, and kind of populist policies. That was an important test of whether democracy could survive in an uh, in, in industrial era. And it really was a competition between these other systems. This week's episode is brought to you by Ashford University. We all have an idea of what our dream job looks like, but someone isn't just going to hand it to you. Odds are you'll need at least a bachelor's degree to make that dream a reality. And I know it's hard to go back to school while you're working. That's why you'll love Ashford University. Ashford University is convenient and flexible. Their online bachelor's and master's degree programs allow you to learn at your own pace. You can study wherever you're the most comfortable learning. And you can take one course at a time. Ashford University's six-week-long courses allow you to take just one course at a time and being enrolled in one class at Ashford means that you're considered a full-time student. You don't have to worry about those pesky standardized tests. The SAT, GRE, GMAT, and other standardized test scores are not required for enrolling at Ashford University. And Ashford University is fully accredited by WASC Senior College and University Commission. Get started today, earn your degree, and make your dream job a reality. Enroll now by going to ashford.edu slash smart. That's ashford.edu slash smart to start your degree today. One last time, head over to ashford.edu slash smart. And now back to the episode. So what I want to ask is, recently speaking, what do you think is the cause of this return of essentially authoritarianism, this populism, and how does that link to monopoly? Yeah, so um, it's a really good question. And I think there's a number of things that happen, but what um, the, the system that we've been living under really from the late 1970s until kind of the financial crisis was a system um, that I think could, you could characterize as, as, quote, neoliberal, right? Which is a system in which we governed, right? People, politicians governed but they use the they through the veil of financial markets. So it's like before the 1970s, you would say milk, you go to a politician, and you'd be like, milk is really expensive. And they would be like, let me see what I can do. And then after the 1970s, you could go to a politician and be like, milk is really expensive. And they'll just be like, well, it's the market. You know, don't blame, oh, you know. Okay. And so that was a way of, and then they, if they wanted to do something, you know, and I'm, politicians became increasingly powerless, but when they did want to do something, they would like tweak a financial tool here or there. Um, so it was like what they were doing is they, they adopted this very sort of uh, financially oriented worldview. So they couldn't actually see real goods and services flowing. It all just became about um, about finance speak. Um, and what happened that crushed that is is two two basic things. Um, well, a couple of things more than two. One is the um, rise of big tech. So I think that big tech showed that there was something really wrong with the way that we understood concentrations of, of, uh, of economic power, right? So the, one of the important parts of this neoliberal era is we didn't see power, right? We were just like, oh, businesses have no power. There's just these markets and the market will change, will organize everything. And we didn't see institutional details of markets. It was just like, oh, if somebody is charging too much money, Wall Street will fund a competitor or whatever. All this stuff that turned out to be nonsense. Um, when big tech kind of grew and started to exert coercive power on other big businesses, right? So like Walmart starts getting scared of Amazon. All of a sudden that framework breaks down. All of a sudden we see power again. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is we can't deny power. The second thing is that China, we had thought that the free market was just providing all these goods and services. And it turns out it came from a state capitalist entity called China, 
right? And now all of a sudden there's all this geopolitical tension with China because as it turns out, the Chinese government has its own goals and aims and agency. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so all of a sudden, all these companies that have outsourced a lot of their production to China are like, oh, oh, we're, we're kind of screwed. And that collapses this ideological framework of, of neoliberalism. And then you have the banking crisis, which showed that in fact, uh, markets are not self-correcting and there are institutions with power and that matters. And you know, finance is political and that collapsed a whole set of illusions. And then you had the, you know, you had Donald Trump who came in and said, in, just tore through both parties, right? He destroyed George Jeb Bush, then he destroyed Hillary Clinton. And he like basically kind of makes the argument, this stuff hasn't been working for a lot of people. And so the political establishment gets shocked. And then something that happened to us, and I was at a think tank uh, where, where this happened, it's called the Open Markets Institute. This would happen among insiders, but it was meaningful. So we started making the case against Google and we said, hey, um, Google should be broken up. And in 2017, the European antitrust enforcer said, we're gonna fine Google for like doing something anti-competitive. And we said, good for you. And then immediately Eric Schmidt, who was then the, the, the CEO of Google, called up the person who ran our think tank and had my whole division fired. And it got- Wait, 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 wait. What, what did your division have to do with that? Because so you were the ones spearheading this? Yeah, we were the ones. We put out the press release. The Open Markets Institute part of New America said, oh, good for you, Margaret Festager. And Eric uh, Schmidt calls up the head of New America and is like, get rid of those open markets people. And they did. And this was in the New York Times, right? You can like look it up if you want. Wait, but but how, did, how did Eric have power to shut this down? Because he was a donor to New America. Okay. Oh, so he he was he was funding it until it didn't suit his needs. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Got and it. Google, Google is funding it too. Google funds a ton of of advocacy groups in DC, right? So if you if you hear on the radio, so and so is a privacy expert, and they say how complicated this is, and it's like there's a pretty good chance that they're like getting grants from Google. Like it's not mm. totally clear, but like that's pretty common. Um, sure. on both the right and the left. So anyway, so we got kicked out and it was this big thing in like the world of antitrust lawyers and consumer protection and privacy people. And all of a sudden people were like, oh my gosh, big tech, the companies like Google, not only are they not, you know, wonderful progressive institutions, but they're actually just kind of like big tobacco. Like they use their power to make more money and to, to they use their money to wield power and make more money and stuff. And so it's like a whole series of things broke down this idea that big tech was magical and wonderful. And it, it was a financial crisis uh, for banks. And then it was, it was, you know, Trump. And then this like minor thing that was important in the insider world. And then there was Cambridge Analytica with Facebook. And this mm -hmm. totally revamped the way that we understood these institutions and moved us from, oh, these institutions are, um, uh, are just kind of like part of nature to, oh, these are political institutions that exist in a set of rules that we've decided on. Yeah. And you know why I love your, th that, like, that's probably my most impactful takeaway from this is this idea that when you quote unquote deregulate, you're just shifting regulation to a company instead of a government. And the reason that's so powerful to me, and, and this is always a, I don't want to say an argument, but a point of contention when I talk to people who have different views on this subject is, you know, although government and look, we both are in DC. I mean, it is not a well-oiled machine. It is like one of the most slow-moving turtles of uh, of a of a place. But I still like to believe that I mean, at their core, the goal is to serve the people. Now, how well they do that and how much is corrupted, okay, fine. But the thing we have to realize is in capitalism, their duty by law is to maximize shareholder return. So, when they're making these rules, right? These regulations, it is for the sole purpose of the shareholders. And we have seen time and time again, the dangers of turning over the power to kind of that short-sighted belief system. Yeah. I mean, I think that the definition of a corporation is certainly, you know, it's a contested thing, right? So, so the idea that the corporation just has to serve short-term shareholder value is a relatively new idea. Mm -hmm. It was, it came from in the 1970s from, from Milton Friedman. Um, and it, it, it's, it's also not firmly ensconced in law. So yeah, there, the uh, a CEO has to make money for his shareholders, but he has a wide berth uh, to do that. There's something called the business judgment rule, which gives him a lot of discretion in how he chooses. So for example, as a CEO, you're not allowed to break the law to make money, right, for your shareholders, right? So you have right. you have multiple um, goals, right? And 
uh, and but now we're in, and, and you just saw there's this big um, group of CEOs called the Business Roundtable, and they just came out with a, a statement saying we don't think that the goal of a corporation is just to make money for shareholders anymore. And I so did it's like, see that. Yeah. yeah. So so it's like this is a contested definition, and I think one of the things that when you look at corporations, these are actually uh, these are actually creatures of law, they're creatures of government. So they're corporate charters, which are grants by the government, by we the people. So we can choose to make these kind of however we want. And there are reasons to want our corporations to be profitable. Like profit is a signal that you're actually taking a bunch of inputs and making them into something that's more valuable than that original group of inputs, which is how wealth gets created. And that is a good thing. But we can structure... Uh, we can structure profit and we can structure corporations in lots of different ways. And we don't have to structure them in ways that um, in which corporations profit by wielding power over us. And we can structure them in ways so that corporations profit by serving us um, or by inventing better products and services for, um, you know, for the good of society. Absolutely. Well, Matt, I know we got to let you go just as a kind of teaser to get people to buy the book. Give us one or two of your recommended solutions. I mean, where would you like to see us go from here as a society? If there's two things I would, I could do, and I'm going to cheat and do two, I would say really reduce the number of, of mergers that happen, right? Especially big companies. So just if you didn't allow big companies to do mergers anymore, uh, you would, what you would do is you would force most venture capitalists and entrepreneurs to go into, um, uh, areas where they would compete with with the big guys because they wouldn't be trying to less like go into areas and, um, and get, get bought. Out, right? Yeah, <laughs> so that would move a lot of capital away, you know, into productive uses. And then the other thing I would do is I would say that um, you know I would I would re I would get make laws that get rid of being able to price below cost. And that sounds a little bit wonky, but like. WeWork, for example, or Uber, or the, these companies, they price below cost for competitive reasons to gain market power. But pricing below cost is fundamentally destructive because what you're doing is you're taking a bunch of inputs and you're selling them for less than they're worth. And that's mm-hmm. actually net value destructive. And that then drives a whole bunch of other companies who are trying to actually be net value creative. It drives them out of business. So if you got rid of that pricing model, you would get rid of a huge amount of fraud and graft uh, and monopolization across the economy. That's a great point, especially about Uber. I cannot believe, I mean, look, I order Lyft to pick either one. I love their service, but I can't believe that they're not just raking in money. Like this is a problem when you create something that is really well done, in my opinion, yet it it's really only serving, sadly, the end consumer. It's not serving the employees that much. It's not serving the drivers for sure. It's not serving taxi drivers. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. It should have grown a lot more slowly than it than it uh, than it did, right? I mean, it, mm. they could have made money on their like luxury car service, and the technology would have moved in to all of these different areas in a much healthier way. Um, similarly, like WeWork is a catastrophe, even though we're we're at yes. WeWork. It's like yes. the co working space industry should have grown like the personal fitness industry where you have a whole bunch of different types of gyms that have differentiated needs. Like instead you had this like steroid like growth from SoftBank where you have like a billion WeWorks everywhere that are not particularly kind of well done. And it's like, if you didn't have this predatory pricing, um, we didn't used to have predatory pricing used to be illegal, right? If you got rid of predatory pricing, you would restore health to our uh, economy in so many different ways because exchange of goods and services would be based on a voluntary need. It wouldn't be based on bargaining power. Mm, I love that. Well, that's a great place to leave it. And it's it's tough because, man, this is a subject, hell, you've probably talked about it for a million hours and you could still talk a million more. There's so much there. But that's why, I mean, your book, you know, it, look, it's not small, right? It's not a little book, but really we just touched the surface. You go much more into the history and then for those listening, you can just tell how Matt's able to just throw out, oh, this was 1970s, this was 1930s. This, I mean, you know your history stuff. So the book, Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, we're going to link to it. Matt, where else are you these days? Are you writing places where people can find you? I know you write, I think, still for The Atlantic. Where else can we get you? Yeah, so I have a newsletter called Big, right, which is one of these Substack things, and you can get that on mattstoller.com. And I'm I'm on uh, and and I write about monopolies. Uh, okay, twice, so twice that's it. 
mattstoller.com. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I write um, I write in a number of different places, and I'm on Twitter at uh, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-T-O-L-L-E-R. So that's where you can find what I write. You put some fascinating stuff out on Twitter. I'm not a big Twitter guy, but I was re- doing some research there, and I learned a lot. So I'd recommend people go there. We'll link to that as well. All right, and we're back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Matt Stoller. His book, Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, can be found now wherever books are sold. We really appreciate that you take the time out of your day to download and listen to Smart People Podcast. And if you appreciate the show, there's a handful of ways that you can support us, none better than leaving us a rating and review on wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to financially support the show, you can head over to Patreon and become a patron over there. Just head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And if you'd like to reach out to this show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of fantastic interviews coming up. So we'll see you all next episode.